Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, definitely uh, the founder of one of the most valued startups right now in in Europe. Uh, we're going to be learning a lot about fintech. We're going to be learning a lot about building and and most importantly scaling companies. Uh, and I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Valentin. Welcome to the show. Alexandro, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm excited about, to talk to you about uh, what we've done so far. I mean, really remarkable what you guys have done with N26, but I guess we thought we, we, before we actually dive into it, I'd like to do a walkthrough through memory lane here so that people really get to know you and to really know how this incredible story came together. So originally, Valentin, you were born and raised in Vienna. So how was life there? I think Vienna is a great city. So Vienna is uh, um, regularly, actually every year almost, selected as uh, one of the best cities to live in around the globe. Uh, and so I had the pleasure to grow up there and uh, enjoyed growing up in Vienna. Uh, and uh, to be honest, uh, we just recently opened an office as well as in Vienna. Um, so that's the latest office we opened, a product and technology hub. Um, and also one of the reasons why we did that is basically because the living quality is very high. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you went and studied finance in St. Gallen. Yes. So, um, you know, at one point when I, uh, I completed school in Vienna, I said, okay, let's, let's go out of the country. And I think it's very, very important to always challenge your own horizon. Yeah. So you always need to go the next step. And uh, for me, going to a, a renowned university, in Switzerland was was definitely a good decision. Um, very traditional university, uh, focused on a, um, a business administration in my bachelor degree and accounting and finance later on in my master's degree. Um, but definitely looking back, uh, very very important decision. And I think when you take that decision, at least in in Europe, I think in the US it's much more common to really think about universities and think about which university you go to, but uh, you have to take the European um, perspective on this. In Europe, most people study around the towns that they have been born in. Uh, and so it's not so common that people really go to a different country or um, a completely different location to study. And uh, that was definitely for me one of the one of the important decisions in my career early on um, to say, okay, let's go somewhere else and uh, study somewhere else. 
And you know, one of the things that I thought it was uh, super interesting is the decision that you made and, and the different internships that you did, because I find that the best entrepreneurs that I speak with, they were able to really develop uh, the, 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 that foundation you know, for, for viewing things from either their time doing investment banking or perhaps consulting. But in this case, you did both and then also accounting to have a good grasp on the numbers. So, so can you tell us how those experiences really shaped uh, who you are? Yeah. So during university, and Sangan is one of the universities, especially when I studied there uh, around 2006, 7, 8, and, and the following years, very classical. Uh, so people, it's a business school, people want to do investment banking, they want to do consulting. And so I was basically one of them. And uh, I said, okay, I want to work in, in an investment bank uh, because everybody's always talking about it and you know how challenging it is and, and how great it is. And I wanted to do the same and wanted to look into consulting. And then uh, as I studied accounting and finance in my master's, I also looked at accounting. Um, and so I, I selected the different internships based on what people always wanted to do and what everybody around me was doing. And I wanted to really see on the job, how this is really feeling and get a feeling for if it's something for myself. Um, looking back uh, was definitely something that has shaped my decision later on. Uh, we might have some time to talk about when, when I then uh, actually decided not to go into consulting for, for a fixed job or um, um, investment banking, but then actually decided to move into the internet space. But it was definitely very important to see the challenging environment. Also, investment banking is, is, is an area where people work a lot. Uh, where there's a lot of great talent as well. The same for consulting. I mean, consulting is definitely something where people know, you know, how to work long hours. They're, they're very focused on, on certain projects. And it's something that definitely shaped uh, how I think about working and, uh, and, 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 and shows you also the boundaries of how much you can work and, and uh, how much maybe you shouldn't work. And you were pointing to, you know, the fact that you saw that everyone was going into banking or or consulting, and you know, in in Spain, for example, is the same thing. So I think that it, it it was the same thing all across Europe. So my question now, you know, really, what what comes up for me is how have you seen that mindset shift uh, over the years? Because now startups, you know, when you're doing a startup, you're not thought as someone that is completely crazy anymore. Absolutely. Um. Uh, when and to put it in perspective, when I chose to go into the internet industry and uh, and startups. Adams or startups sphere a little bit more. That was around 2011 uh, when I decided to to take that path. 2011, 2012, and uh, I would say since then it has massively shifted. So when I go back to my university now, um, they have a big uh, event every year, uh, only focused on startups and innovation. Uh, I think it's the biggest event actually on uh, at the university today or one of the two biggest ones uh, where they only talk about new industries, digitalization, these things. And uh, in Europe, especially the, the, the trend was massive in the last years. And I think it's a little bit, it's very much comparable to the U S trends that you've seen, but in the U S I would have, I would have said that the trend here to go into startup was about three to five years earlier um, than in, in Europe. Uh, and uh, we see a very similar development uh, to compared to the US, what we've seen earlier in the US. Yeah, and it's definitely exciting to see that that shift. And and I know that for you, after you completed the master's, you did a, a, a trip to Tokyo. You spent some time there. And this really shaped the way that you think about customers and design. Can you tell us about this? Mm, absolutely. I've Actually, during my, my master's degree, I spent one semester in, uh, in, in Tokyo. 
Um, and I think there's two great things about, again, maybe coming back to why I actually chose to study abroad as well from the beginning, is first of all, it's different cultures. And I think if you go to Japan, completely different management culture, people are, are traditionally have been used to work in one company their whole life. So the the brand of, a, of an employer is really, really important. And, uh, and, and it's quite interesting to see that. Um, the other thing, people are much more used to working groups and in teams. Uh, and, uh, that is also quite interesting, uh, quite different to, um, Western management styles, because if you know you're working in the same companies for, for a hundred years or for 50 years, then, uh, then also your approach to teamwork is a little bit different. I'm not saying one or the other model is better, but it's just very, very interesting to see how people work differently together. If you come more specifically to products and how people deal with, um, um, with, uh, with customers, what fascinated me always in Japan is how people take care about their customers end to end. Um, so they, they not only think about the product purchase that they're doing, but they think about the total experience. If you go into a shop, how do you, how is the experience when you enter the shop, uh, when you purchase the product, um, you know, how is it's packaged? Um, all these things. So they have a much more holistic view around the customer and always want to grant the best experience. And I think that's, that's quite interesting. And how was that different, Valentin, from what you were seeing, for example, in Europe? So I think in Europe, if you, and I always take the supermarket example. You know, if, you, if you go to supermarket in Europe and you buy you know, a, a drink, like a Coca-Cola or something, um, and when you open up the drink, the can, you need to be happy that it's not exploding and, uh, and you're all over Coca-Cola. Um, uh, if you go to right. Japan and you go to supermarket, you know, you're greeted by the man at the door, wish the happy day, then you get the Coca-Cola, then they make sure it has exactly six degrees. Uh, then you go to the cash desk, uh, they package it for you, they wish you a happy day and you leave. And, uh, and you have, it's just a, a different approach to the experience. And the interesting thing in Japan is it's on, on all levels from my experience. It's not only for very expensive products or very cheap products, but the quality of how you served as a customer is different to, I would say, not only Europe, but to any Western approach to uh, to product. And the good companies still, I think, do it in a very similar way. If you look at how, if you enter an Apple store, um, how you're taken care of yeah, with the concierge, basically, that, that greets you in the beginning. Um, it's something that only was materialized over the last couple of years. Um, I think that is, that is quite exciting. Um, and then the other thing that really was impressive in Japan for me was the attention to detail and the attention to design. So if you look at product packaging, uh, design, calligraphy, so um, has a big influence on this. Um, this is something that I was always a big fan of. If you go to Japan, um, um, you see a lot of very great design products. And, um, and that is definitely something that I've that have taken from that time. When you look now at N26, uh, design is one of our core values and our core principles, and also the simplicity of things and uh, attention to detail is something that I've definitely learned in, uh, during that time. Very cool. So, so once you've completed now the, the studies, you, you get back to Europe, uh, and then you make the decision to join the internet, the internet world. So this was with Rocket Internet. So how did this happen? So not very, not very, not very planned, I would say. So I was, I was really after university and was just after the financial crisis, uh, 2008. So I applied for jobs, 2011, 2012, or actually 2011. And, uh, and I was applying to the, to all the big banks, to consulting companies, and I got some good offers afterwards. Um, 
But then I ask myself, also looking at the experiences I had during uh, my internships, is that where I want to start? Is that where I can have the biggest impact in the first years? And everybody knows, you know, if you start in, in, in one of that areas, the impact that you actually really have in the first years is really limited. So if you start investment banking, I think the first three years, it's not likely that you see any customer. So you, you, you have maybe a good learning curve still, but the impact is not so high. So I was asking myself, where can I have the biggest impact? Uh, and, um, and what is an industry that is growing? Because I was also thinking about, you know, financial crisis just happened before banking wasn't the place to be. Uh, and do you want to work in an industry that is, that is cutting jobs every year? Or do you want to actually go to an industry that is maybe growing by 500% every year? And the question is only, are you growing 500% or are you growing 600% or are you growing 450%? And, uh, so there was on one hand, a very strategic decision for me where I thought, okay, that makes sense to go in an industry that's growing. On the other hand, uh, I was always interested to also work in, in digital in, uh, and I wanted to do that. I, I saw the, uh, maybe I saw the, the, the opportunity somehow, and then, uh, just apply it for, for a job at, at rocket internet. Um, and looking back, actually crazy. I didn't apply to many jobs. I just applied to this one digital job, basically. And then if I would have got, I wouldn't have gotten an offer. I would have just, you know, gone, gone into an investment bank. But luckily, I got an offer, and then started with Rocket. It's amazing how destiny, you know, like really puts the um, the path forward for all of us. Because obviously, for you, this time with um, with Rocket Internet really shaped you and really you know, gave you the exposure to all the different things that they had access to, especially, you know, like what, what you were starting to see here in the U.S. with, with Stripe and, and with other, you know, uh, fintech companies. So, so can you tell us, you know, like what, what opened up for you during this, this time? So the biggest learning for me during that time was at university, you were always told everything is complex and you need to, organ building an organization is basically you need to learn uh, business administration and explains you how you build an organization and it's all very complex. And what really impressed me when I was working, um, um, at rocket was you had an idea basically shipping shoes, let's say, and, uh, and then three, four people sat together and said, okay, we want to do that. And then six months later, you had 80 people that were working with you on that. So a real team, 80 people. And, and you were really making a difference. You were shipping shoes every day and you were, um, you were really seeing that there's demand from customers. And so what I learned at Rocket was really that you can build a company from scratch and it took away this, this fear of this theoretical building a company thing to really just showing you sit together, you have a good idea, you just call a couple of people up and say, okay, how do I actually do that? Where do I buy? How do I sell? Then you build a website and you start basically. I mean, very reduced. But um. And that was really, for me, it was a moment of, of, you know, truth. It was a moment of, okay, cool. You, you don't need to work in a, in a company for 30 years and then do a management buyout, but you can actually start something on your own based on a good idea. And if the idea is good and you focus on the customers, you can really have an impact. And that was something that I've definitely seen at Rocket and what took away the fear of being an entrepreneur for me. So then let's talk about the incubation process of N26, at what point does the idea, you know, come to mind? At what point do you meet Maximilian and how does everything come together? And at what point also you give your notice and say, hey, I'm going to go after my own thing now. So when, when I was at Rocket, I, I, I was working on models very similar to Stripe and Square in the U.S. Uh, so I had a deep insight into 
um, fintech and uh, all these models were focused on payment and more B2B oriented models. Um, and not many people were thinking about fintech in Europe, especially not about uh, B2C, so consumer facing um, fintech. And um, I realized during the time that all the companies working in, in the financial industry are really, really slow and have big difficulties to transform um, their business model into digital. And um, that was the main reason for, for us then to say, okay, let's found something in that space. And from the beginning on, um, I remember we still, we always wanted to be, or wanted to go in the direction of founding our own bank uh, and having a mobile bank that is easily to be accessed. But um, in the beginning, this idea was much too big for us. So we started with a much smaller idea. So we started with the idea of a, a prepaid card for teenagers. So a card that the kids could take to pay for their online purchases and on iTunes uh, or anywhere else. Uh, and then you got an app to it uh, that would, was able to, or the, the app could be used by parents and by the kids. So ki kids were having the opportunity to shop and parents could load the card and could see where kids were shopping. And we started that that idea. We pitched for it. We raised uh, the first. You know, we first of all we quit our jobs, and then I think the biggest transformation that you need to do is from you know earning money to basically then spending money on your own business. Um, and uh, and then we invested I think the first ten thousand euros into the company, and then we raised a little bit of funds funds from uh, Axel Springer, one of the biggest media companies in Germany. Uh, we, they offered us a place in, in their accelerator program. So we moved, we started the company originally in Vienna and then moved to Berlin quite quickly um, and then raised another, I think, 500,000 from angel investors. Um, and then we really produced and, and started developing the idea, prepaid card for kids, launched the product later that year into beta phase, I think in September, October, November, and um, then quickly realized that most of our clients were actually using the product, not for the kids, but for themselves, because the product was basically, you got an app, you got a, a MasterCard attached to it, you could load it quickly, and you could see in real time where you were spending. And a lot of customers were approaching us and were saying, okay, you're doing this product for kids, but actually look at my bank account and my mobile experience with one of the traditional banks, and it's, it's really shitty. And, uh, and then they said, okay, that looks much better. Uh, and then we thought about, we thought about it and said, okay, maybe we want, we don't want to just do a product that we deliver to banks. You know, our original idea was we have this prepaid card for kids. And at one point a big bank could sell it with their accounts to the smaller, to, to the, to the younger target group. And, uh, and then we said, maybe the opportunity is huge. And it also took away a little bit the fear from us of developing your own bank or building your own bank, because we were doing this prepaid card for kids. And from a functionality perspective, you could load money onto the card, you could go to an ATM, you could pay cashless, you could uh, uh, do transactions from the account. So it was very much similar to the fully-fledged bank account with a different regulatory setup, but it took away the fear from us of building, of building a big bank is so difficult. And then we said, okay, let's transform the business from a prepaid card uh, for kids into building a mobile bank. And uh, the problem at that time was we had raised about 500,000 euros and uh, we almost spent everything. And we just went into this beta phase with the first 200, 300 customers, but we were, we were sure we needed to transform and pivot the model into the, into the mobile banking model. And, uh, and then going out fundraising with basically a great product that I think at that time already was great from the user experience, but going out and saying, okay, we have the 300 customers and actually, yeah, uh, 
we more think about transforming it into a very similar thing from the user experience, but something completely different, what we would have to develop again for another uh, 12, year, 12 months um, it was not the best time to go out and, and raise funds. Um, um, and then it was a really tough time. So we, we were almost running out of money. I think we had three more weeks of, wow. of financing. And there was also a time, I think, where I didn't get a lot of sleep. Um, and also my co-founder didn't. And, um, and then luckily in the end, we had, I think one or two, we had actually, we talked to 300 investors and we got 298 were declining us. And then we had two more investors left and, uh, and actually one investor then said, okay, it was one of the best investors we, we wished for, um, then said, okay, and I'll, I'll lead another round. And, uh, then they, they led our institutional seed round, they invested about a million euros, uh, and, um, and then, you know, we went on from there. Uh, and then wow. it was really on the board of, of being bankrupt. That's uh, remarkable. That's remarkable, especially because when you do a pivot, and, and I've done them myself, I mean, it's pretty scary, especially if you've raised money, because if people are not reinvesting, uh, and obviously it's just a different type of model that you pitch them, you know, when they invested, if they don't reinvest, then that sends super negative signals to the market. Because then people are going to be like, oh, hold on, they're not reinvesting. There's probably something wrong with the business. How did you dealt with that? And how did you keep, you know, some of those investors in the loop? Yeah, th this phase is really, really difficult because you have to separate it into, into three parts. First of all, as an entrepreneur, you pitched your idea that you originally raised funds for hundreds of times. So yourself, you have kind of a bias where you, you, you believe in that idea. It doesn't matter how shitty the idea is. And then you raise funds, you raise funds with that idea. So it takes some time for yourself to get over that idea. Then you, yourself, you get over that idea. And then you need to, you need to get back to your investors and the investors, the same thing. They, they have this investment decision, the investment hypothesis, and then you go back to them and tell them it's actually completely wrong or we have a better idea. And it's really, really difficult then to, to get them on board for the, for the new idea because also investors are not so close to the business in the beginning. Uh, we're angel investors mainly. Um, so you go back to them. You maybe only see them all, every couple of months and then suddenly you tell them, mm, you invested in this um, junior our kids idea. And now we want to build the big bank. Yeah. So you need to, again, spend time on getting them to, to like your new idea. And then the third thing is, then you go back to the team and the team worked hard for the first, you know, eight months on, on launching that product. Then you launch a product and then three weeks later you say, okay, we pivot to the new model. And then also, you know, the team worked really, really hard. And then you go back to them and say, okay, but that's not the right thing. We need to do something different. So it's the three steps you have to take that are really, really difficult. And then in our case, at the same time, we were also raising funds. Um, so I think a tough time, but in the end, as a founder, if you see, and that's the most important thing, that the customers want something, then you need to follow the customers. And, and that's the most important thing. It wasn't with us also that, that our original product wasn't working. I think it, it, was much, it would have been much more difficult to get it to a stage where we are now with N26. But I think it was much more important to see that the, the customers want something very specific. In our case, a mobile bank account, easy to use, and then focus on that product and then follow through. So then let's talk about following through on this. Uh, so finally, you guys did the pivot. You were able to secure the funding. Uh, unbelievable. You know, three weeks away from almost not making it. And then, you know, finally, everything goes in the right direction, meaning that you guys continue to execute. And at what point... You know, is there like like something 
that happens where where maybe you know like you you know that you guys are headed into something really big here so then we raised the new funds and it was i think in in march or around march basically and um and then we still needed to develop we really said we, we didn't have anything we didn't have a banking license we didn't have a banking partner we had a prepaid card set up for kids so we completely removed that um also the the app that we showed to investors where we said okay we change a little bit and then we upgraded to being the best bank around the world, we basically threw it into the into the trash can, uh, or the, uh, and and then uh, developed from scratch. Started a new app development, and it took us another twelve months um, from or or ten months from from that point where we raised funds to actually launching a product in two thousand fifteen um, to a broader market. And uh, I think when do we when do we really realize that this is flying? This that people need the idea was really the first weeks after launch, like the, the first two two months after launch, when uh, we were actually closed, we had a closed beta, um, so the beta launch, and then we had a closed beta with a waiting list. And uh, we got more and more signups onto the waiting list every day. And then we realized, you know, there's a there's real demand with, for customers, of customers. And uh, that was when we were realizing that that uh, that is an idea that the market needs. Uh, and and that was that was the time. And then, Luckily, I, actually, at the same time, also investors realized that, and we raised another round. We raised our Series A, 10 million euros, and that was the most unconventional round ever because uh, we raised it within two weeks without any fundraising. And uh, that was also very, very important for the further success of our company because everybody who is listening, who is uh, himself or herself a founder, um, uh, you will find out, you, you will know how much is, you, what kind of time it takes to yeah. fundraise. And uh, in that time, in its scaling time, where you see customers have huge demand for your product, it's the best if you can focus on the company. So Series A raising uh, the 10 million euros to it quickly um, was very important for us. And I'd like to, um, to hone in on the, on the fundraising, you know, just in, in, in a bit. But I'd like to ask you here, because obviously you've been really driving and leading, you know, the, the marketing, you know, efforts, especially here when you guys were launching the the new product or the pivoted uh, you know uh, concept so i guess i guess how did you approach it because it doesn't matter if you have the best product in the world if nobody knows about it it doesn't matter uh, so i guess how did you approach this super important launch for you guys to really make it such a smashing hit we really st- took it step by step um, and we we created a lot of pr bus we were first mover in the category we had great pickup from from TechCrunch and international uh, uh, tech blogs, um, and we really focus on the on, not not on purpose, but we in, in looking back, we we had a great traction within the early adopters with the tech scene, and uh, and mainly through PR. Uh, and then we had this closed beta, and then then the the, the virality picked up. Yeah, um, very cool. People were talking about it with their friends. Um, if you look at the product, we had a, we had a, and we still have a transparent card and there was, no one had a transparent card in, you know, all over Europe. So when we shipped the product to the first customers and it's a product that you use every day, you pay for things, people around them were asking them. So it's all about the virality and, and how, how high the frequency of your product is. The higher the frequency of your product is, the better you can, you can get the, the virality going. Very nice. So let's talk about the, uh, the fundraising. So how much capital have you guys raised today? We've today raised more than uh, $600 million. Uh, 
Very cool. And I think I saw uh, that it's uh, over 3.5 billion, uh, probably one of the most valued startups there in in Europe, which is uh, amazing. So so what have you learned about fundraising? Um, a lot of things. Um, uh, first of all, I think we've been very lucky throughout the way to to find the, the, the right investors for us. Um, because looking back now, I think we have a great board. We have investors that helped us to, to challenge also how we built the company from the beginning on. Um, we have a couple of people that have been very close to... Uh, to PayPal when it was founded, uh, um, Vala Ventures, actually a fund based in in New York, uh, that helped us actually to shape our thinking of how we should build the company, how important it is to grow, uh, not to look at um, 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 only the, the unit economics in the beginning, but really focus on, on happy customers. I think that was very important. So I think the how lucky we have been in the whole process with not knowing much about fundraising from the beginning to be lucky to get the right investors on board that are not, you know, pressing you into something you don't want to do, but give us the freedom as founders, gave us the freedom as founders to develop the companies as we want. Um, that was very, very important for us. Um, on the fundraising process itself, I always say, I think there's not so much difference between raising 1 million and 100 million. It's always the same, just the, the size of, of the funds change. And also the, 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 the process is obviously much more professional if you if you raise a hundred million or two or three hundred million to raising like five hundred or a million seed. But for an angel investor or an, a smaller fund, let's say a smaller fund that puts in a million, um, it's as important to put in this million uh, as it's important for a bigger fund that puts in a hundred million. In the beginning, it's more about vision and and growth, and the further you go to Series C and D. It's also more about data. It's more about the, the actual unit economics, but it's still a lot about the vision. Also today, um, uh, most of what we are going to build and most of the value I think that we're going to create is still ahead of us. Um, so uh, I think the biggest things that I've learned is really be passionate about your idea. Um, you need to like pitch it quite often. Um, and, uh, and, and if you're passionate, if you have a vision for the product and if you are good in communicating that to investors, and, uh, and and then you get lucky in, in finding the right investors early on. Um, I think then the rest uh, follows. And what about alignment? Because, I mean, we're talking here about vision, but I think that making sure that the alignment, that the expectations are clear, and then also that the investor doesn't have a different agenda, it's uh, it's critical. Um, so, so can you talk to us a little bit about this? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I know that every business plan we ever did was wrong. So um, um, the alignment is, is a good thing to have, but uh, in the beginning especially, I wouldn't spend too much time about detailed business plans and so on. It's important to have your model, to understand how your model works. And part of it is also to have a good business plan because it shows how your model works. But um, I wouldn't argue too much on, on where the cross-sell would be in two years from now, uh, but I would, I would really think about the fundamentals of the model. And how would you say that expectations have changed from financing milestone to financing milestone for you guys? I mean, in our case, expectations actually always have grown yeah, and grown and grown. And, uh, and we were today valued, as you mentioned, at more than 3.5 billion. And, uh, and that brings a lot of expectations with us. Today, we have a huge team, a great team that, that can balance that expectations and also work on these expectations. Uh, I think it needs to be in balance. So you always need to accelerate your team and, and the people you work with in the same pace that your expectations are growing. Because in the end, you realize you cannot build the company yourself, but the team needs to build the company. 
And therefore, expectations are definitely rising over time extremely fast. But at the same time, you need to also raise the team and 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 and, and recruit the right team that you know helps you to to fulfill that expectations. Because how many people do you have now? So today we have around 1,500 people, uh, most of them in Berlin. We have a, an office here in New York uh, where I'm today um, uh, with about 70 people. And then we have another office in Barcelona with around 100 people. And we just recently opened an office in Vienna uh, where we have the first 20 people. And we have another office in Sao Paulo, but there's only a handful of people there. Very cool. And, and in terms of, um, of for example, scaling, um, and I guess, you know, like uh, to, to, to dive in a little bit more deeper here in, in what we're thinking about, which is the team. Obviously, you've, you've scaled a lot and, and really fast, the team. So how did you scale at the same pace? Because the last thing that, that you want is for the company's growth to outgrow you. So you mean how I've personally scaled with the company, you mean? Correct. How did you personally scale yourself to continue at the same pace with the scale of, of the business itself? Because I find that the who you are when you start the business uh, or, or your mindset or, or the approach it's completely different to where you are, you know, like later, later in the in the in the life cycle of the business, where you know there's different problems, where's a different analysis. So I guess saying, how have you transformed yourself at the same speed at which the company has been growing? So it's always a challenge to transform at the same speed as the company is growing, especially in our case, because our company is, is transforming quite quickly. And also, if you look at the team going from, you know, being two people on a couch founding the company to 1,500, something completely yeah. different. Um, and uh, I think the key to that is that to always question yourself as well, if you still have a value add to the company. And, uh, and I think you need to be very honest about it. And as long as you feel, and currently I still feel together with my co-founder that we can help our company um, um, to grow further. And, uh, and that's good. Um, how did I develop over the last years? Um, in the beginning, it's easier because you can talk to everybody directly. If you have a team of 10, 20, even hundred, 200 people, you can know people. You, if there is any conflict, if there is any unclarity in targets, you know, do you do a fast Q and A and basically almost everyone can ask a, a question. You can answer it. Uh, if you are 1,500 people and you want to do a Q and A where everybody has a question, uh, you sit there for three days and answer a question. So the, the, the way of how you communicate uh, gets, is completely different in a, in a bigger organization. Communication is always important, but it gets even more important. The structure of communication gets even more important the bigger the company is. Um, on on the, the people around you, I think the biggest challenge is really also challenging your team around you, um, always working with the best people, um, helping your people to also grow with the company is, is really, really important because it's, uh, it's a huge challenge. Everybody here is working. Um, um, I think you need to be on, 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 the, on the border of, of, of acceleration. So everybody that works with N26 needs to accelerate pretty fast. And uh, it's not always easy. And so they are being helpful and, and, and helping people to grow is, is very important. So developing people, grow, helping to grow people gets more important to bigger the companies because if you're 10 people, it's a little bit easier. If you're 1,500, you need to think about it a little bit more from an organizational yeah. perspective. You know, how, how do you grow people in, in such an organization? Is there a development budget for everyone um, um, and all these things? Um, for me personally, uh, I think how I perceive my, my personal work, obviously different communication today, um, different, different symbolic of the things that I'm doing, 
uh, also more many more topics today uh, with the internationalization of the company uh, and 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 the size of the company. Um, but honestly, at the same time, as a founder, what well, the company you founded is the most important thing for you from the from the day you founded the company, and it didn't change. So, for external people now, they say, okay, we have a company that is over three billion, has thousand five hundred employees, and now everybody's as a great company. But for for me, when I, or also for my co-founder, when we founded the company, it didn't matter if we had ten employees or thousand five hundred employees. It was always the most important thing in 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 terms of what we're working on. And um, so, therefore, I think the, my personal work didn't change like too much in terms of intensity because in the beginning you have ten people, five people reported to my co-founder, five people reported into me. Okay, today still I have five direct reports, and my co-founder has five direct reports about. And uh, obviously now these te- these these people that report into us have hundreds of of people in their teams. So it's it's different, and also the symbolic of what you're doing and the topics that you're discussing about are different. But um, from the intensity of work, I think it was very similar to when we started. And the importance also of what we were doing, for me personally, was always the same, be it today or be it you know, five, five years or six years ago when we started the company. Got it. Got it. And we were talking about vision before. So, Valentini, if, if you were to go to, to sleep tonight and you were to wake up in a world where the vision of N26 is fully realized, what does that world look like? So in the end, we try to build a company that empowers people to live and bank their way. And that, may, that means we want to build a company and a bank that 100 million of people around the world or more love to use every day. And this again means, in, in specifically what we are doing, it's a much more personalized experience for customers. I think a bank can be much more than only a transaction booker. It should show you opportunities. It should show you, you know, if you get a rental car, maybe you want to have an additional insurance for five euros. It should show you if you travel to Tokyo, where do you get cash? At what at what exchange rate? So it should be much more personal, much more proactive, and not only book transactions for you in the retro perspective. Um, the second thing is we work very much on the flexibility. So on, you know, how can a bank be more flexible and able our users to live and bank their way? So giving them the flexibility, the freedom on, of living however they want to live. Maybe you li- live together with five other people. So you maybe want to have a shared account and you want to share that account with like one click. So these are the things that we're working on. Maybe you, you want to, you know, do shop online with a, and you don't have your, your credit card in your wallet. So maybe in the future, you just want to issue a new credit card that is digital and you want to do it with one click. So for us, it's all about the flexibility and the freedom that we can give to, uh, our, to, to our customers and how we can transform how people perceive banking more, not being something that is restricting you to something that is giving you opportunities and helps you to realize your own life and your own life idea of your life. Got it. Super powerful. So, so one of the questions that I always ask the, the guests that, that we have on the show is, if you had the opportunity, you know, knowing what you know now, I mean, it's, a, it's been quite a remarkable journey, you know, since you guys started back in 2013. If you had that chance to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger 
Valentin that was uh, about to give the notice uh, in Rocket Internet before starting uh, N26. What would be that one piece of business advice that you that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why? It would be definitely even focus more on the customer and do much more customer and, and testing of products in a, in a real-time scenario with customers. Um, so for a lot of things that we've launched, we have only too late realized that we should have launched things a little bit different. We still have been very successful in kind of the product. And I think one of the strongest things that we, we have at N26 is our product experience and the mobile experience. But when I look back, I would still focus much more on user testing early on in a, in a, with the real screens and, and, and real journeys before actually investing into developing uh, the technology in the background. We have always tended to develop too early and then too late find out that maybe a product we should have developed differently. And that would be, I think, one advice uh, that I always try to give also to, to young startups, really focus on the customer even more brutally, do more user journeys, really with design screens. I think that is, that is very, very important. That's really interesting because, especially for the first-time founders, they tend to execute and build based on assumptions rather than data. So I guess, you know, obviously now, you know, at the scale in, in which you guys are at, you know, it's, it's super easy to see, you know, people's behavior. But let's say for the folks that are listening that are, you know, still maybe like not even on the prototype and perhaps like validating some of their ideas, how would you, how would you tell them to go about it? So it all starts with like a strong hypothesis. So what I think is very, very important is that user testing doesn't remove the strong hypothesis uh, uh, approach. I think first you yourself with your co-founder, with your team, you need to sit down and say, this is the best product. That's exactly what I want to do. And you need to really in concrete detail, put it onto, onto a, a screen or design the screen or the flow and then have a, have a hypothesis on what you're changing for users. And then you can approach users. It doesn't need to be 10,000 of users. It, it can also be a smaller group of users. And you can show them and, and then verify a little bit your hypothesis. Obviously, the, the devil is in the details. Yeah, Everybody's biased. If you do an interview and they're friends of yours, they normally tell you it's great. In the end, you realize no one, no one wants it if you launch it. So that's the difficult part of it. Yeah. So how do you get this testing group of users? But I would be really strongly work on the hypothesis. Be very, very clear on what you want to change or what do you want to change for customers? And then also find out what should the MVP that you're launching change or what do you want to get out of that MVP? Do you want to see that people return to the product? Do you want to see that people choose a premium function? What is really what do you want to test? And I, I think that's where you need to focus on. That's fantastic. So, so Valentin, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? To myself. To yourself or maybe like, uh, maybe you have like some social media or maybe there's like a, an email that you would recommend that they reach out, maybe yourself or or, or of the team for support. I mean, how, how would you do that? Um, so I think in, in, in everybody who is uh, who who would like to follow us more closely, um, I think there are a couple of ways to follow us. So first of all, um, you can follow me on on my Instagram profile. It's Valentin Stalf. Uh, you will find me easily on Instagram. Uh, so it's actually my name. Uh, you can follow our company on Instagram. Uh, it's N26. Uh, and uh, then you can follow us throughout all the social media pages, the company. Um, also, you can follow my LinkedIn. Uh, on LinkedIn, I always try to post uh, um, more business-relevant things. Uh, on Instagram, we do more 
how does the company work uh, and um, how do we work together at N26? I think that's also quite interesting for entrepreneurs to see how we do things, how we how this actually materializes. How does a Friday celebration look like? How does a Monday stand-up look like? How do people come together? What's the setup? On LinkedIn, I try to do more things that are business-related. Uh, new funding rounds, maybe one or, or the other time, blogs from, from all our C-level or our employees. Um, so I think that's the best channels to, uh, to follow me. Um, and then you can obviously also reach out through Instagram or, um, or LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, Valentin, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much, Alexandro, for having me. And uh, it was very exciting. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.